Welcome to this very special episode of the Revised Physics Podcast. Very special because it's probably, for most of you, your last exam tomorrow. And that is so exciting. So I want to start by saying so well done for getting this far. You've just got one more final stretch to go. And then you're there. You've got the whole summer ahead of you. So best of luck for tomorrow. What we're going to do today is we're going to go through some uh, some key topics in your in your physics uh, for the paper tomorrow. Hopefully calm those nerves and jog your memory of a few things. But also we're going to go through a bit of a stress buster as always to try and relieve that last little bit of stress you're going to have before you can chill out uh, fully after tomorrow's exam. If it's your last exam, if it's not your last exam, I'm really sorry, you've not got long to go. Uh, so keep going that last little stretch. Also, it's really nice to be back on the Revised Physics Podcast. It's been a while since I've done one of these. I hope you've been well and all your exams have gone well in the meantime. So let's start by looking at some content. And we're going to start by going over pressure, uh, a hypercramp session for that. So to start off with, I'm, going to, I'm just going to say the basics is that pressure is a force per unit of area. Now, in liquids, which can be, sorry, in fluids, which can be liquids or gases, particles collide with the walls of their container and the particles exert, exert a force on the container and the container exerts a force on the particles. Now the force exerted on the surface in contact with the, part, uh, the fluid particle will be at the normal to the surface. Now what does the normal mean you might ask? Well it just means at right angles too. All right. So the force exerted on the surface in contact with the fluid particle is at right angles to the surface. So it comes directly out of the surface. So a quick question here for you. I want you to try and remember what the definition of pressure is. Hopefully you got that. It is the force per unit of area. Now next we're going to look at atomic pressure. So at the top of mountains, atmospheric pressure is lower because the air there is less air at that altitude. And that just means basically there's fewer particles in the air that is there. Now pressing, the, that's how many uh, um, particles are pressing down on the mountain, okay? So when we move quickly up into the Earth's atmosphere in a plane, your ears can pop, and if you've been in a plane before, you'll ex have experienced that. And that's because of the drop in atmospheric or air pressure. Now, can you remember at what angle will the force exerted on the surface in contact with a fluid particle in a container be? So what will that angle be? Remember that it is at right angles and it's 90 degrees. It's also called the normal to the surface. Now, air is lighter than water, but it still exerts a pressure on things beneath it. So as you dive deep into a swimming pool, there is more water and therefore weight on top of you. And this extra weight exerts a larger force and higher pressure on your body. So the deeper down you swim, the more pressure you feel. And if you've ever, again, if you've ever done that in a swimming pool, you'll have felt that in your ears, where your ears go, your ears can pop as well. Um, and similarly, like people who are scuba diving can suffer with real problems with their ears potentially. So another question for you, why is atmospheric, atmospheric pressure lower at the top of mountains? 
That is because there are fewer particles in the air. So when we're calculating liquid pressure, we can do this by using the equation. So the pressure beneath the liquid surface equals the density of the fluid times by the gravitational field strength times by the depth. So if you get a question on uh, pressure beneath a fluid surface, it's density of fluid, gravitational field strength, depth, you times those three things together. And that pressure is measured in pascals and the density um, of the fluid is measured in grams per cm cubed. Now depth is also the equivalent of height of a column of water above you. So if you're two meters deep, you've got two meters, a two meter column of water above you. So that's the same as saying uh, the depth is two meters. Right, so let's go on and have a look at something a little bit different now. So if we have a look at some wave stuff. So let's have a look at some sound waves hyper flashcards. So I'm going to basically ask a question or give a statement. I want you to have a think about it and I'm going to give you the answer. Okay. If you want to pause every time I say one, uh, that's, you can test yourself. That's quite a good way to help you remember for the exam. So first question, how is sound produced? Well, sound is produced by the vibrations of particles in a medium. How do sound waves travel? Well, sound waves travel in a series of compressions where the medium is squashed together and refractions and re-refraction and re-refractions, sorry. Uh, Re-refractions, where the medium is stretched apart. So what is ultrasound? So ultrasound is the sound above a frequency of 20,000 hertz, and humans cannot hear that. So the particles in air are vibrating quickly. What will that produce? That will produce sound waves or sound. Okay, so next question, what are P waves? Well, P waves are basically primary waves and they're longitudinal seismic waves produced by an earthquake. Another question for you, what are uh, rarefactions, is the word I struggled with earlier. That is when the medium is stretched apart. And then next logical question is what are S waves? Well, if P waves are primary waves, S waves are going to be secondary waves. And they're triverse, uh, transverse sorry, seismic waves produced by an earthquake that can only travel through solids. So question, above what frequency can humans not hear? Well, so the answer to that is 20,000 hertz. And that's the, where ultrasound is. So what two seismic wave types do earthquakes produce? Remember, it's P primary waves, which, um, which are longitudinal seismic waves produced by an earthquake, and then S waves, secondary waves, which are transverse seismic waves produced by an earthquake. And remember that they can only travel through solids. Right, let's move on swiftly onto something to do with magnetism. Let's have a look at a magnetism and transformers hypercram. So, the magnetism describes the ability of magnets to attract and repel other magnets without touching them. So magnets have a north pole, which is N, and a south pole, S. 
And the two, if two magnets are close enough together, the, uh, then the south pole of one magnet will attract the north pole of the other, mag other magnet. You know all this. This is, this is easy stuff. I hope it's giving you a bit of reassurance for tomorrow. So if one magnet is turned so that both south poles or north poles face, uh, face each other, then the magnets will repel each other. So you need to remember that opposite poles in the magnet attract and like poles in the magnet repel. And these are both examples of something called non-contact forces. So the forces between magnets, which are called magnetic forces, are caused by invisible magnetic fields. And a seismic field is the area around a magnet where, other, uh, where another magnet or magnetic material like iron, nickel, cobalt, steel, uh, feels that force. So question for you, what type of force causes magnets to attract and repel one another? Remember that is a non-contact force. Now the strength of a magnetic field depends on the distance from the magnet. The magnetic field is strongest at the magnetic's pole. Next question, give three magnetic materials. Earlier I gave you, gave you four, let's see if you can remember three of them. So, so iron, nickel, cobalt, and the other one we talked about earlier, steel. So where is a magnetic field strongest? Remember that will be at the poles. So transformers can change the voltage in wires carrying alternating currents. And there are two types of transformers. So step up transformers and step down transformers. Let's have a look at what they both are. So in the step up transformer, the secondary coil has more turns than the primary coil. And the potential difference across the secondary coil is greater than the potential difference across the primary co coil. So step up transformer, secondary coil has more turns than primary, and the potential difference in the secondary coil is greater than that of the primary coil. So that means that the potential difference is stepped up. Easy to remember that, okay? So then step down transformers, uh, the secondary coil has fewer turns than the primary coil, so it's basically the opposite. So then obviously the opposite of the potential difference as well. So the potential difference across the secondary coil is less than the potential difference across the primary coil. And that means the potential difference is stepped down. So step down transformer, you're going from more, more um, turns in the coil to less turns in the coil, which means more potential difference um, to less potential difference, okay? So it's stepped down. Now, transformers are used to convert alternating current supply from one potential difference to another. And electricity is generated at voltages around 15,000 volts. Now, transformers step up the voltage to 400,000 volts for transmission. And transformers then step down the voltage to 230 volts. And that, that basically is, uh, is what comes out of your plug sockets in your home or school. So next question. What is the purpose of a transformer? Well, a transformer will convert an alternating current supply to a potential, uh, a different potential difference. Next question, what type of transformer is used to transport electricity from the generator to transmission lines? So from the generator to transmission lines, we're stepping up the potential difference. It's a step up transformer.
So let's have a look, one quick more look at another, another section of your physics, um, the physics exam for tomorrow. I want to look at some astrophysics hyperflashcards. It's a tricky uh, topic this, so I just wanted to cover this, squeeze this in for the last little bit of this extra special long podcast. So, first of all, what is a nebula? Well, a nebula is a cloud of dust and gas. What's a main star sequence? Well, that is a stable period of a star after the pro-star stage. Next, describe the orbits of the planets, moons, and satellites. So planets orbit the sun, moons orbit planets, and artificial satellites orbit Earth. Little trick for you as well that so moons can also be called natural satellites. So which of the following is a nebula made of? So I'm going to read out the options. I want you to try and remember what it is. So is it stars, solar systems, gas, water, or dust? Well, that would have been, hopefully you got that, it's gas and dust is what a nebula is made of. So what are the stages of the life cycle of a small star like the sun? Let's go through them. First of all, you've got the pro-star, then you've got the main sequence, then the red giant, then the white giant, sorry, the white dwarf, and then the black dwarf. So pro-star, main sequence, red giant, white dwarf, black dwarf. Next, what's the stable period of a star's life cycle called? Can you remember this from earlier? It's the main sequence. So what are the stages of the life cycle of a star much larger than the sun? Well, then we've got pro-star, then we've got a red supergiant, a supernova, and then a black hole or neutron star. Reading this, I'm, there's so many songs about uh, stars, which is cool. Champagne supernova, black hole, supermassive black hole. You might not know that song. Anyway, there's lots of songs about them. So what do planets orbit around? Remember, it is the sun, or if it's not our solar system, it's a star. And which of the following is not a stage in the life cycle of a very big star? So the stages I want you to tell, I want you to tell me which of these is not a stage in the life cycle of a very big star. So we've got a red supergiant, a supernova, a white dwarf, and a black hole. Whereas in fact, a white dwarf, that is a stage of a smaller star. Next, we're going to have a look at a bit, something a bit different to do with redshift. So what is redshift? So the redshift is the shifting of light from distant objects in space towards the red end of the spectrum. Now, what does the Big Bang Theory state? The Big Bang Theory states that the universe began from a single point and started expanding. What about dark matter? What on earth is that? Well, dark matter is an unknown substance that holds galaxies together, but doesn't emit electromagnetic radiation. Question. What, what's the shifting of light from distant objects in space towards the red end of the spectrum called? Clue in the question. Red end of the spectrum. It's the red shift. And that's all we're going to look at for... Uh, astrophysics for the moment. I think we've just about got time to go through the stress buster. 
What I want you to remember is that this is your very, hopefully your very last moment, very last exam you need to go through. And we're going to go through a sporting guide to exam stress. So remember, be confident when you go into that exam, you own it. You know you've worked so hard up until this point. You've done all of the exams you've had so far and you're ready to absolutely nail it. Remember that you should celebrate small wins. As you're going through those little que those questions, uh, you can remember uh, if you get if you know an answer is definitely right, you're like, yes, that's an extra mark towards the grade I'm trying to get. Surround yourself with supportive teammates. So make sure that tomorrow morning before your exam, you're, you're spending time revising with the people you know are going to be supportive of you doing that last minute bit, last bit of revision. Also, listen to your fans. So the people who uh, want the best for you it might be some family members or some other friends. Listen to them and the advice they give you. So it's been an absolute pleasure doing these Revised Physics podcasts. This is the last one we're going to do before um, we break up for the summer as it's your last exam. So I hope you have a great summer. We'll be back um, in the in the new year in September so listen out for your GC your A-level podcast whatever you're looking for then uh, we'll be back and we hope to see you then best of luck from everyone here at Seneca good luck for your exams we're going to be releasing night before podcasts before every exam and if you head on over to YouTube on every weekday we are going to be doing live streams at 4.45 and 5.30 so make sure you subscribe and while you're at it rate us five stars we're amazing <laughs> good luck <laughs>